It's a delightful opportunity this morning and certainly a great blessing that has been given to each of us. As we've noted on the sick list, so many are unable to be with us this morning, but to you and me, we've been given that precious privilege and what a great obligation that we also have to adore and to worship and to praise the God who made us and has made things for you and me well today that has allowed us to gather like this. It's certainly a continuation as we think about the series of lessons in which we have been involved. This series touching the subject of premillennialism, you'll notice we have already arrived at the ninth installment in that series of lessons. And it's been my hope that as we have worked our way to this point that we've been reminded of so many things, not just about the end of time, but matters that challenge us day by day so that we can appreciate God's love for us, the purpose for the establishment of the church, the grand and glorious goodness of the gift of Christ's blood. And as we come today, we will more carefully focus on the two things that I have listed as a part of today's title, the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast. I'm sure that we each have heard so many things about these two entities, these two realities, and over the next few moments this morning, let's perhaps develop a lesson in which we give some more attention to them more carefully. By way of reminder, you may in fact briefly consider where we have been and where in fact we are today. We begin by asserting the need for Bible authority as we discuss these matters or, yea, any others in the world of religion. And with that in mind, we spent the second lesson trying to paint the sensational picture that so many in the human family paint about this matter of premillennialism. We even reminded ourselves of how many people have accepted it who in fact consider it the truth when in fact there isn't a single element of it in its detail that is found to be in harmony with the Word of God. In the third lesson, as you can see, what was the reason for Christ's coming to this earth in the first place? We learned clearly that it was not to establish an earthly kingdom. In the fourth place, we asked and answered the question about the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Was it a surprise? It was not. We noticed in the fifth lesson the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament, how that rather than speaking about a physical kingdom, they pointed directly to the church and all the eternal nature that would relate to it. In the next two lessons, we looked at both the rapture and the tribulation. We found that despite the fact that men so often teach these things, the Bible knows nothing of either one of them. Passages must be lifted from their context, divorced from the truth in which they were set, and only then can they be molded into anything like the figment of the imagination of men who teach these matters. Last Lord's Day morning, we looked at the prophecy of Daniel involving 70 weeks and found rather than speaking about some issues concerning the end of time, they spoke about chronologically the coming of the Christ, the nature of his death at Calvary, and what would come about by benefit for the human family. As we come then to our lesson today, what about the Antichrist and what about the mark of the beast? Perhaps we might begin the lesson with this interesting quotation today. This quotation will in fact serve to be very much like many that one might find. I thought perhaps it would at least put us in the direction of what we so often have heard about these matters. And I quote, There is no doubt that Saddam Hussein is the beast of Revelation. This has been confirmed by my computer analysis. There is ample evidence that he will be given power over all kindreds and tongues 
and nations, and he will join the Antichrist in the final battle of Armageddon. Different quote from the same author. This will force Saddam, supported by both China and Russia, to invade Saudi Arabia next year. According to Revelation 13.4, his followers will worship him, and they will in fact say, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? That was from an article written in 1998 by a person named Dr. Jennifer McAlpin. You and I know what the fate of Saddam Hussein has been. We perhaps witnessed it on the nightly news. That is just a sampling of the kind of things that one can hear relative to the mark of the beast, relative to the Antichrist, relative to this rather sensational speculation that is supposed to be involved with the second coming of Christ. To say all of that, perhaps we might should say some of these things too. When descriptions of the Antichrist are given to you and me, almost without doubt, we are told that this individual will be first a male. He will be rather handsome in appearance. He will be incredibly eloquent in his ability to speak. He will be a rather noted orator. He will be persuasive in his abilities. And multitudes will follow him. However, he will be the absolute personification of evil. By what he says, he can gain a following, but in the final analysis, he will be evil in person. So much so that, of course, he will then wage war against all the forces of good, and finally, only Christ will be able to come and defeat him at that so-called battle of Armageddon. I say all of that to say as one gives thought to this Antichrist and to what is supposed to be involved with and in him. Notice some of the other things that could be mentioned by way of this list. Did you notice the second element I had on there? Speculations of the Antichrist with a question mark. Perhaps you, like me, have noted over the years so many have been identified as the Antichrist. In fact, listen to this listing. In terms of over the last, say, hundred years, the last century, Adolf Hitler was said to be the Antichrist. The Italian leader Benito Mussolini was said to be the Antichrist. Others, in terms of that same era of time, recognized in the Russian leadership, like Joseph Stalin and Nikita Khrushchev, both of them at one time or another were identified as the Antichrist. Coming somewhat further down the stream of time, believe it or not, the American statesman Henry Kissinger was called the Antichrist by quite a few back in his day. What about more recently? George Bush has been called the Antichrist. Bill Clinton has been called the Antichrist. And a gentleman by the name of Barack Hussein Obama has also been called the Antichrist. Suffice it to say, virtually any generation in which one lives, there will be those so-called prophets, rather large in number, who will pinpoint a person like a Saddam Hussein, perhaps like Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyan leader. Seems as though it's almost left to one's fancy who he might choose to identify as the Antichrist. The question I would wish each of us to ask this morning is, does the Bible involve itself in speculation like that? Is it guesswork as to who or what the Antichrist is? Or does God, in his inspired revelation, pinpoint to us far more carefully and far more decisively what and who the Antichrist is so that we should not be led astray by these so-called false teachers 
who it seems jump on every bandwagon to proclaim almost any notable leader as the Antichrist. I have listed for us some additional considerations that hinge on this. Though we will revisit them somewhat briefly later in the text and lesson this morning, you'll notice that there are those who will quickly run to passages like Daniel chapter 7 through 11, Revelation chapter 13, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in them they seemingly will find such information about the Antichrist. I would quickly mention for each of us, the word Antichrist occurs in only four verses in all the Bible. That's it. Four. I would submit if we were to read them, we would have the sum total of all that God has said about it. I would ask you to read with me then this set of verses, all in the writing of the Apostle John. We will simply read them one after the other, beginning in 1 John 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Then verse 22 of that same chapter, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And then two chapters later in 1 John 4 verse 3, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof we have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Finally, in the little book of Second John, one chapter book, verse number 7, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. That's every usage and every mention of the word Antichrist in all the Bible. Might we thus devote some attention to what was said in those verses? And when we've properly appreciated that, we should easily know all that God has had to say to us on that subject of the Antichrist. May I submit to you four truths from those four verses. Four truths. The first truth is this one. There were many antichrists in John's day. Did you note again the reading of verse 18, the very first verse that we read together? Even now, John wrote, there are many antichrists. That immediately should help us appreciate these verses do not look forward down the stream of time several millennia later to one single individual who would occupy the role of the antichrist. There were many of them already present in John's day. And notice in verse 3 of chapter 4, that third verse that we had read, it says that as that verse closes, Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Those who thus lift these passages from their place and use them to teach that somewhere there's one person who is going to rule supreme and in a rather regal fashion and gather a large number to be his followers have completely misconstrued the thrust of the Antichrist. Many of them were already present in John's day. That thought alone should help remove from our mind the heyday and so much sensationalism that surrounds what is so often taught about the Antichrist. It just simply isn't true. As you can see furthermore, 
near the close of that same slide, what else is said to us about these antichrists? Verse 19 of 1 John 2 reads like this. They went out from us. Who's the they? What is the antecedent of that preposition? It's the antichrists. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. These antichrists, even of John's day, were those who were apostate disciples. They had known the truth, but they chose to leave it. They chose to forsake it. Note twice John said they went out from us. They weren't forced to leave. They chose of their own volition and will to forsake the truth that God had revealed, inspired in the nature of his apostles. They left us. That's who the apostle, that's who these antichrists were even then. Merely those who stood not firmly with the truth. They weren't true to it. Apostate in their character. Does that sound like a political figure that you and I are told this Antichrist is supposed to be? Some person like a Joseph Stalin? An Adolf Hitler? Notice this wasn't a political figure at all. It was a religious person who chose to leave the truth of God. And in leaving it behind, chose to live and teach that which was against Christ, Antichrist, and thus identified himself as an Antichrist. But what's more, perhaps a third identification. What else is true about these antichrists? You'll notice something specific about what they taught and believed is asserted to us. In verse 22, the second verse we had read, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. We thus learn, interestingly, that this Antichrist then was an individual who in fact denied the very deity of God and the deity of the Son. That seems to harmonize so well, doesn't it, with that verse that we notice in Second John verse 7? For many deceivers are entered into the world. A deceiver is one who beguiles, who deceives, who misleads. What is it that these are misleading? who confess not that Jesus has come in the flesh. In that first century time, it had already developed a false teaching that some did not think Jesus literally came in the flesh. They looked upon the flesh as being an evil thing, far removed from the purity of the Spirit. They thus argued God could never have come in the flesh, but friend, it wasn't so. Christ wept, John eleven thirty five. He was hungry, we learn in John 4, he slept. Mark chapter 4, we even appreciate that on that old cross and in the scenes leading up to it, he bled. And we even see the way in which his body was mutilated and beaten so mercilessly. Jesus was here in the flesh. And the anguish and the turmoil that he endured and experienced is able, in fact, to be a powerful weapon that you and I can appreciate. He was tempted in all points like as we are. And yet he did not sin. Hebrews 4.15 Those points, in fact, summarize the last two that we've noted. I think we can quickly appreciate then what the Scriptures say about the Antichrist is worlds removed from what men say premillennialistically about it. You and I need not be gullible, 
not fall into the trap of thinking that there's some person who is an antichrist yet to come, it simply isn't true. There have been many antichrists here ever since the day of John. In fact, using those, could we not summarize some of that teaching like this? And in fact, in a rather bold way, make this statement. Whether it be John's day or ours, any person who either directly or indirectly denies the deity of Jesus or his humanity is an antichrist, period. Thus, that's not just one person. There are multiplied thousands around our world who fall in that category. All of them, by these descriptions, could well be termed an antichrist. We look not for one person, a political figure, to be the antichrist. That is not the New Testament teaching on this subject. Furthermore, perhaps in finality, might we revisit, and at least in passing ask, what about these other passages then? 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13, Daniel chapter 7 through 11. If those do not involve the Antichrist, what do they teach? We might begin in Daniel. Beginning in chapter 7 of Daniel, recall that God reveals through Gabriel the stream of events through time. Empires that would come, the Babylonian followed by the Medo-Persian, followed by the Grecian and then finally the Roman. Those were the principal thrusts of the early part of those chapters. They didn't speak about some coming person who was to be, yet in our future, an antichrist. What about that passage in 2 Thessalonians? Admittedly, there Paul does speak about the man of sin that was yet to be revealed. And as he spoke about and identified that man of sin, in fullness that probably would take us an entire another lesson to develop. But however, might we state this, it does not refer to a political figure. That man is described by Paul as one who is a religious being, a figure, and notice it's not just one person either. That again does not refer to a single antichrist. Revelation 13 is what will take us to the latter part of our lesson this morning. As we close the first part of our lesson today, the biblical teaching of the Antichrist is so different than what men have so often taught. And of course, God's word is that which is true. And thus, the appreciation of the nature of this Antichrist, as premillennialism teaches it, is so false. May you and I not be given to believing that, or in fact, to even look toward it in any way, shape, or fashion. What about the mark of the beast? That chapter in Revelation 13 in which that mark of the beast appears has been a captivating thing for so many. I've listed just a few features and thoughts about that. You might appreciate with me that in premillennialism, the mark of the beast is a central and very critical matter. It is supposed to be a mark on the forehead or on the hand wherein individuals have this mark. And that identifies them by linkage with the beast, which we might admit is a very prelude to the Antichrist, the thing we supposedly just now discussed. What is this mark of the beast? What does it involve? Again, throughout the decades, many things have been asserted about the mark of the beast. Some have said it's a certain kind of credit card. Some, by virtue of that number 666, associate it with almost anything. Might we take a moment and ask, what about those folks in our country who have a dial tone that is 666? 
that exchange in the telephone directory, which, by the way, is in Macon County, not too far from here. I wonder if folks in Lafayette think they are the mark of the beast. I guess we'd have to ask them. Those who know the Bible would know better than that. But could we not at least remark and think about some of these ideas? In the book of Revelation is the only place that we find the phrase mark of the beast. And as you can see, it occurs eight times verbatim in that book. If you wish to take note about where those are located, it's Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17. In addition to that, Revelation 14, 9, as well as verse 11 of that chapter. In addition, Revelation 15, 2, Revelation 16, 2, and finally, Revelation 19, 20, and Revelation 20, verse 4. In terms of direct and explicit mention, those are the only occurrences of that phrase, mark of beast. When we studied the Revelation in some detail a couple of years ago, as we looked at the mark of the beast and we saw its contradistinction to that seal of God, which is portrayed in this book as being a lovely and wonderful thing, we might again remind ourselves of some of these truths relative to the mark of the beast. First of all, that mark we learn in verse 16 of Revelation 13 was in fact symbolically stated to be received in the forehead or on the right hand. And you'll notice that very chapter is the one in which the two beasts of Revelation were introduced to us. They had not occurred until Revelation 13, and suddenly in that chapter we saw a land beast and a sea beast. We sought to identify those two beasts, what they represented, and it was in that context that the mark of the beast arose. You'll notice that as one makes that set of ideas and discussions, what's the symbolism associated with the right hand, and with the forehead for that matter? All throughout the Bible we have appreciated from Old and New Testament that right hand for the rulers was the place of embodiment of power. The scepter was held in that hand. When we read the book of Esther, and we saw in fact the scepter in the, in the right hand, and Jesus reigning on the right hand of God, emblematic of power and strength. This mark of the beast thus was emblematic of authority from the beast. And as such, it identified all the evil associated with him and with the emblematics of that beast. We learn in verse 17 of Revelation 13 that those who did not have the mark were subject to strong persecution, sometimes even leading to great difficulty indeed. We also learn this, that very specifically John told us that this mark of the beast identified a man and the number of a man. Thus, it is not something just generically associable to anything. There was a specific number and man in mind. And as we think about the embodiment of that man, who he was and what he stood for, we should hopefully be able, using the clues in Revelation, to pinpoint what in fact was in the very mind of the Holy Spirit. You'll notice in Revelation 14.11 that we learn in terms of that name and the number that it relates back to that 666, triple usage of the word of the number 6. We also see in Revelation 13.15 that false religion was involved. 
whatever man this was to be, and in whatever way he presented that, it would involve false religion. Religion that was not the truth of God. Religion that had separated from the truth of Jesus the Christ and the gospel that he had brought into, into the nature of humanity. As one gives thought then, with these clues, where, where are they leading us? Perhaps a few more identifications. We learn that there would be some who would, in the strength of their person, not give in to following the mark of the beast and would not have that mark. As we learned, it, it would be they that would be so sternly persecuted. You'll notice particularly, though, in Revelation 15:2 and Revelation 20, verse 4, that John specifically affirmed that some would be strong enough not to give in to this mark of the beast, not follow the beast, not follow the dragon, and not have that mark in their person. You'll notice that those with that mark, as the book of Revelation closes, are the very ones who endure eternal punishment. They are cast with the dragon and with the beast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone, and that is the end of that terrible lot. Doesn't it pose a rather frightening thing then to ask? Surely none of us would want the mark of the beast if it's possible to have it. What then is this mark of the beast and what does it mean? Perhaps we can make this interesting comment. It is easy to see that there is a great correspondence between Daniel chapter 7 and this description of the beast in Revelation 13. If we could then seek to appreciate John's recalling and quoting of Daniel 7, we would have a tremendous opportunity to delve deeply into that identifying who this beast was and also what this mark of the beast is in Revelation 13. Again, perhaps that would take us for a more extended lesson, but suffice it to say as we come near the closing remarks, when we read in Revelation 13, 18, that it's the number of a man, that number being 666, we come then to ask, given the way that numerology worked in the days of Rome, in which we each can remember Roman numerals, X means 10, and V is 5, and just I is 1. We remember D is 500, and L is 100, and things like that. How does one interpret those? And is there a person who, if you took the letters of his name and add them up, you'd get 666? I'd submit to you it would seem that the best evidence from putting all of those things together points us to L-A-T-E-I-N-O-S. If you add up the letters, Roman numerals associated with those numbers, guess what you get? 666. The absolute personification and identification of that false and corrupt Latin system that is described in such detail with those beasts. Again, if we take Daniel 7, all the beasts that were represented there and bring them to bear to what is represented here, the fitting together seems so harmonious and it seems so perfect, leading me to make these comments. This Roman man, L-A-T-E-I-N-O-S, is in fact the personification of the very matters that I've written, the corruptness that came from the Roman system. When we say corruptness of the Roman system, what is meant? We do not mean the Roman government of the first century. 
Civil governments can operate any way they so choose by the authority of heaven, Romans 13.1. But what came out of that Roman government? A religious system developed from it. And that religious system has been the corruption of the face of this earth now for 20 centuries. The corruption had already begun in John's day. It had, been, it had begun in Peter's day. And there are those today who still associate Peter with the one who started it, or at least was emblematic of starting it. There is no such truth in the Word of God to that. In fact, as time rolled onward, when the Roman system had reached its pinnacle, roughly five to six hundred years after the birth of Christ. Think what developed from there from the dark ages that clouded the human family. And only as man sought to emerge from that do we find then an attempt to correct that system. And only then, notice denominationalism has come straight out of it. Where we have the human family so beclouded with difficulties that are associated directly back to the Latin man L-A-T-E-I-N-O-S. The mark of the beast, you see, is not a physical mark on your hand or mine. It is not something that's on your forehead or mine, literally. It is emblematic, as you can see near the bottom of this slide, of that set of apostasy that is identified with false religion then and now. In terms of the persecution, how boldly we might recall the Roman system was so severe that, remember, the emperors were worshipped. That, in fact, was that second beast of Revelation 13. But what was required? It was required of anybody who entered the marketplace to stand before this Roman bust, a statue, and to bow before it. Otherwise, you couldn't enter in the marketplace. You couldn't buy and sell and feed your family. Notice that's the exact thing that Revelation 13 mentioned. You can't buy or sell if you don't have that mark of the beast. Thus, the persecution that they endured was basically a life or death decision. Do I bow before that emblem of the Caesar and thus enter into and buy what my family needs or do I allow them to suffer and perhaps starve? Of course, a Christian could not bow before that bus. There's only one king, and that's Christ. And there's only one God, and he's in heaven. And the Roman Caesar cannot be worshipped. That's the dilemma that a Christian faced in the Roman Empire of the first century. That's the backdrop of Revelation 13. That's the understanding that we can see in relative to that mark of the beast. It's not a credit card. It's not some stamp that might be put on your hand or mine. And it certainly is not having a telephone exchange of 666. That Latin man and all that has been brought from it has been such a scourge on the human family. As we come near the close of our lesson today, perhaps in summary we might make these statements. Premillennialism has taught many things about both the Antichrist and about the mark of the beast. However, as we've learned this morning, all of them are false. It is sensational. It is, in fact, pure speculation, and it does capture human attention without a doubt. Every book that seems to be written that talks of this skyrockets to the top of the bestseller list. People do have an interest in it, but sadly, they don't read the one book that tells what the truth is about it. They accept what someone like this Jennifer McAlpin has said or they accept what some other person in the figment of his or her imagination has been so happy to assert. 
we have learned the following things. Antichrists have been with us since the first century. There's not one person to which we look to be an Antichrist. And in terms of the mark of the beast, notice that it was something that was received then. It's not something yet to be received by a selected few near the end of time. May you and I not thus be gullible and fall into these traps in which we adhere to or be or become frightened by these teachings of Antichrist or the mark of the beast. We have the truth of God so lovingly and warmly presented, and you and I are demanded that we follow it faithfully. Prove all things whole or cling to that which is good, the very statement found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21. May you and I prove all things and hold to that which is good. It might well be that this morning, within the sound of my voice, there has been one or more who has, in fact, given heed to this teaching of the Antichrist, or perhaps has become one interested in believing what men have said about the mark of the beast. Don't fall into that. Let this book be your sole guide in those matters. This does speak so clearly about a plan of salvation. What is involved in order that you would not have that mark of the beast? In order to have the seal of God and not have the mark of the beast, you need to be a Christian. You need to, in fact, be in the body of Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. If this very day we could assist you in becoming a member of that body, it happens by way of these. You need to hear the truth of what God has set forth in His Word. Believe Jesus to be the only begotten Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His lovely name as the Son of God and be baptized. Everything is prepared to conclude those and we would be happy to assist you. If you have been a Christian and have known what that was like, but you really no longer are a true one and you know that, you perhaps you feel guilty. You've disgraced Christ. You have brought blemish upon His church. You need to make a change today. He died for you and you aren't promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. And if we could pray with you today for forgiveness of those sins so that you could be in fact reinstated to a position of faithfulness, we'd be honored and happy to do that. If we can help in any of those ways, won't you let us know while together we stand and while we sing.